Maybe you know this one. It was the night before Christmas. And all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Sorry, I'm not going to do the whole thing, but you know it, right? You know, I remember in sixth grade, we had a, a literature class, like, I don't know if it's English or whatever, it was a project, and we had to film a video. I remember, like, the big on-your-shoulder camcorder thing, and we, anyway, it was just a big deal, uh, and, and it was probably terrible, but we, we memorized that thing, we did it all. That's a pretty interesting uh, poem because of this. A lot of how we do modern Western Christmas, especially American Christmas, a lot of the traditions from how we do it come from that poem. You can do some interesting research you can do on that, but just the little things, the stockings hung by the chimney with care, like there's some history and stuff, but the thing that we do with like the big gaudy sock things that we hang up on our walls, like that's like a thing from this imagery from the poem, kind of the imagery that we imagine Santa Claus as, a lot of that comes from this poem, the, the reindeer and the flying sleigh, like all of that kind of, we get that in our minds largely from this poem, so pretty interesting thing. Now, now Christmas traditions have evolved in a million ways uh, forever, and um, um, but this idea of how we celebrate Christmas, twas the night before. This is like anticipation piece. This thing of like, ooh, can't wait. Trying to get some Christmas on. This kind of began with this twas the night before Christmas poem. And so we're kind of totally hijacking that phrase, twas the night before, for the next four weeks. As we do something a little bit different with it. Uh, this month, we're using this phrase, twas the night before to kind of get into a different Christmas spirit. So December 25th, for generations, hundreds of years, Christians have used it to celebrate the birth of Christ. Now, I don't know if you know this. This is interesting. We don't believe Jesus was born on December 25th, like scholars and stuff don't. Uh, we aren't sure what his actual birthday was. In fact, the earliest church, the early Christians, they didn't celebrate his birth. That wasn't a thing. They didn't really, maybe they thought about it, but they, they were really big on the resurrection. That's the, that was the main message and still is the main message of Christianity and the church, but then like pagan holidays that found around like that, that Yule, uh, that what do you call it, the winter equinox period, a lot of groups use that to celebrate, so Christians kind of said, hey, well, we want to do a thing, and so they chose to celebrate the birth of Jesus on the 25th, and it's a pretty cool history, and I'm, I'm all for it, and some of those things have, have evolved and changed, but one thing that developed throughout Christ, church uh, history is something called Advent. Anybody ever celebrate Advent like as a, as a particular way to do Christmas? Yeah, some church traditions do it. Uh, I haven't done it really much in my life. There's a lot of ways to celebrate Advent. If you Google what is Advent, you'll get like 50 different things. There's no standardized way to do Advent. Some people use can candles that are different colors. There's words associated with it. Maybe you have an Advent calendar where you get like a new Hershey's Kisses thing every single day. I'm for that. There's a lot of ways because the word Advent just means arrival. It means arrival, and so we're like building up this kind of countdown or anticipation of the arrival of Jesus, God in the flesh, who came as a baby. We're going to use Advent this year. We've never done it as a church, and uh, it's something I think I want to get into from year to year and kind of build on it. Our goal, uh, the way we're going to do it is each week we're going to take a single word. We're going to take that word. We're going to look at a word and a story from the birth narrative of Jesus, and kind of overlay those and see what that can give us for this coming week as we build up towards the arrival, Jesus coming. And so uh, next week we'll look at faith. We're going to study the story of Mary and just see how her faith can lead us to understand faith and what we can do with our own faith. The third week we'll be looking at joy. And joy is a big part of this season, but we're going to look at a group of outcasts that gets uh, a message about Jesus coming and how that message of joy changed them and can work in us. That the final week is Christmas Eve. Can you believe we're that close? To Christmas Eve, it was just June, like last week, and today it feels like June outside, but 
on uh, Christmas Eve day. The word is peace, and that's, I want to I encourage you to do this. Uh, this is our first year in a building. What? Uh, so that's pretty cool, and so I want to encourage you to do this. Like, we always talk about the church is not the building, and we are the church, and we got to be out and do it, but listen, it's cool to have a space of our own, and so can you do something, like in your brain, and more importantly, on your calendar, can you consider making Christmas with your church family part of your family's Christmas tradition? It might have to wait till next year because you're like, I don't know, Grandma's already bought the plane tickets and stuff. But probably not because you're all terrible planners because I know our culture. Um, think about it. So Christmas Eve is on Sunday, and be here. That's just the, that's the challenge. It's cool if you're not. But see if you can be here, hang out with your church family. We're going to have some special elements, uh, some kids doing some stuff, some, some candles being lit, some special moments that you wouldn't see on a normal Sunday. It's be a slightly abbreviated service, and we'll have, I think, cookies and hot chocolate in the lobby afterwards like we always did at the Y, but now we're doing it in our own space. Uh, that'll be the last week. This week, though, here's our word. Our word is hope. 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 There is a, a theologian from South Africa named Desmond Tutu. I love his... Um, kind of definition of hope. He says this, hope is being able to see that there is light despite the darkness. It's that kind of ability to burn through the mess and see like there's something to look forward to. There's something, there's a reason to carry on. It's easy to feel hopeless. Watch the news, think about your life for a second. Look at your finances, whatever it is. There's things that can make us feel hopeless, and hopelessness can lead to, to some bad places. Depression and pain, broken relationships. But I want you to hear this. This is kind of the message today. We serve a God of hope, and he's got a track record of, listen, kept promises and answered prayers. This isn't wishful thinking. This isn't your uh, fantasy, like, I hope I get a pony for Christmas. You're not going to get a pony, but you can trust in Jesus, because of his kept promises and his track record of answered prayers. And so uh, the Christmas story, the, the Advent story, the story of Jesus coming to the world and arriving here is a story of hope. It really is. And so what I want to do is actually take a look at the story from a historical perspective. If you rewind all the way back to the book of Isaiah, so this is a prophet in the Old Testament, and he is uh, like kind of a, a, a spokesperson, a mouthpiece for God during these times. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 through 3, this is 600 years before the coming of Jesus. Listen to this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And if you skip down to verse 6, this might seem familiar if you know some Christmas songs. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're going to dive into that text again in a couple of weeks, but like talk about twas the night before Christmas. This was twas 600 years before Christmas, and people are talking about this hope that they have. There is a light in the darkness. There is a solution to the pain, and if you rewind scripture all the way back to the beginning, you're talking about the Garden of Eden, and there is this like moment where God says, listen, there will be a day where a heel will come and crush the head of a snake. Fast forward to Abraham. Still thousands of years ago before Jesus. And there's a promise for all mankind to be blessed. Isaiah, 600 years. 
We're going to get a little bit closer to the birth of Jesus today. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Luke. So grab Luke. We're going to be in chapter 1. Uh, if you need a Bible, we always have them. We give away in the lobby. There's a shelf right by the door. You can take a Bible. We want everyone in our church to have a good readable version of the Bible. If you decide in the middle of the service to go get one, go get one. Or grab one before you leave. Merry Christmas. It's a gift for you. Or you can just borrow it for the Sunday if you just need it from week to week. But we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 1. Luke is one of the four biographies of the life of Jesus. And in the book of Luke, we got this... Uh, we got this kind of historical perspective. He's a historian. He's kind of an investigative journalist, too. He goes all over the world, and he interviews people who knew Jesus and saw the story. That's why I love the book of Luke, because it kind of gives some, um, kind of gives some perspective to say this isn't just some kind of wishful thinking or some religious thing. This is a historical thing to happen. And when we get to chapter 1, this is just before Jesus is born, we're going to meet actually some of Jesus' relatives, two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Do you know the story? Now, if you don't know the story... Hang on, we're going to learn it. If you do know the story, I always say this. If it's one that's pretty familiar, just forget everything you know about it. Let's just read it fresh this time. Let's see what God has to say about it. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we're going to meet Zechariah and Elizabeth in what is kind of a crazy moment in their life. Let's just see what happens. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Okay, quick time out. We'll leave the scripture on there, but there's a lot of historical stuff going on here. It would mean a lot more to the uh, original readers of this, but it's pretty cool. First of all, Herod, who's that? Herod was kind of like the vassal king of Judea. So, so the Romans had come in. They're taking over a whole world, but what they would do is they would allow the local government to still kind of be in charge. It's like, listen, as long as you kind of march to my marching orders, we're cool. I want you to keep your culture. I want you to do your things, but you're going to be Roman. Herod was this, this king that was in place that the Roman government appro approved of, and he's going to be a big part of the Jesus story. We're going to see a little bit more of that in the coming weeks. That's King Herod. And then we see this thing, Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says they're both descendants of Aaron, that they were from the order, specifically uh, Zechariah was from the priestly order of Abijah. Who are they? Aaron's the brother of uh, Moses, way back, way, 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 way back. And so basically, if you talk about descendants of Aaron, what you're talking about is someone who's in the priestly clan, okay? The Levites were one of the main, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and the Levites were the, the tribe that the priest came out of, and then Aaron becomes the first priest out of that whole thing. And then by the time you get to Zechariah, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, people in that family. So not everyone's going to be a priest all the time. So they would rotate through like the families. So Abijah's family line, you guys remember Abijah, right? Probably like Think about them all the time. Um, Abijah's family line, it was their turn. Okay, so they get called up. So that's the history stuff. Verse 6. Both of them, Elizabeth and Zechariah, were righteous in the sight of God. They're good people, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But, don't miss this, important to the story, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. They were both very old. So there's your introduction. Now let's get into the setting of this story, verse 8. So once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, so all the priestly divisions took turns and there were lots of jobs to do in the temple. And like probably the most uh, prestigious job was the ability to work in the area of the temple called the Holy of Holies. So the temple's built like this concentric circle. There was an area on the outside, and then there was an area on the inside. And there was, there was a place where only Gentiles could go no further. If you weren't a Jew, you could only go this far to worship. Then there was like this, this kind of inner court. People would worship in all these areas. And then there was these areas where the priests would minister. So they would do sacrifices. They would burn incense. They would come and just pray for you. They would, do, they, would, they, would sing, they would lead singing. It was a lot like church. And so the temple has this structure. But at the very center is this inner sanctum called the Holy of Holies, the holy place. This is the place where the Jews believe, and because God told them, this is like where his presence would dwell the most uh, strongly. 
This is a place where uh, they would do the most amount of uh, deep prayer and things like that. And so you find the Holy of Holies. And only one or two people could serve there like at a time. In fact, most priests would never get a chance to see the Holy of Holies. Nobody would go in there. Verse 9, though. Zechariah, he was chosen by lot. It's a system they pray over it, almost like drawing straws according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, they all assembled and prayed outside. And so there's this moment of like, you ever had a really good day at work? And like you showed up and everything just worked out right. And Zechariah shows up, his team gets called up to serve at the temple. He gets this special job of burning the incense. Everybody's worshiping on the outside. Things are going great, but things are about to get more spectacular here for Zechariah, verse 11, it says, while he's in there, an angel appeared to him. You hear that? An angel appeared to him. When we read the Bible, sometimes like, yeah, 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 an angel appeared to him. Angels ever appear to you? Yeah, Yeah, well, they don't appear to me that often. Um, It's pretty amazing. It's pretty incredible, this moment. This is like angelic being shows up, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, which Zechariah saw him. When Zechariah saw him, he was naturally startled, gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Oh, and by the way, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. So imagine you go to work, and your boss comes to you and say, listen, uh, Bill, Bill, man, we're, we're proud of you. You've been doing good. We decided to let you step up, do some of the most important work today. All right, that's your thing. And you're like, sweet. So maybe you're going to go close the big deal. You're going to get to go do the big product sale pitch, whatever it is. And you're excited about it, right? You get ready. You take the deep breath. You do the self-talk, Bill. Don't mess this up. You can do this. And, And you walk in, and like the customer that you were expecting to see is not actually really there. Instead, this mighty angelic being is there. He's like, hello, Bill. I've been waiting for you. I've been hearing your prayers. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be a daddy. <laughs> like, this is what happens to Zechariah at work. I don't know how quick your brain would fire off and, like, really respond to that. He's blown away. This unexpected messenger comes, and he adds to the message. All right, you're going to have a son. You need to name him John. I think Zechariah is a pretty cool, like, biblical name. John, I mean, a couple Johns in here, but Johns, y'all know it's like a plain name. You're like, everyone has my name, right? I'm looking at all our Johns. <laughs> Everyone's called John. God chooses John to be Zechariah's son's name. And in verse 14, he kind of outlines this kid's path. This is crazy. Your son, John, he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back my people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and their dis- in the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now there's a lot going on here, and there's like a lot of nuance that Zechariah probably picked on, picked up on real quick that I want to kind of explain to you. There's, there's a couple things going on. First of all, this the first century Jews believed this kind of um, 
like, I don't know if it was a, a prophecy so much as it was just this understanding that God was going to set the world right. You know, you might have heard the Jews were waiting for a Messiah. They didn't have a clear picture of what that meant. So they kind of had read between the lines of what some prophets said and some things that they hoped for. That God's going to set the world right. But before he does, he's going to send a figure in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Elijah is one of the greatest, most powerful people in their history. And one of the biggest things about Elijah, yes, he does some miracles. Yes, he's really favored by God. It's incredible what he's able to do. But one of the biggest things Elijah does is he goes toe-to-toe with this big old nasty pagan wicked king named Ahab. And he just goes and and he's like, listen, God is upset about some stuff. And God allows through Elijah for him to proclaim, there's going to be a famine there's not going to be any rain. And he shuts out. And then Elijah's this one who goes up on a mountain. He has this like, this like prophet battle with some prophets of, of a demonic spirit called Baal. And so they have this battle. And it's, and it's Elijah who, like, he just calls down in a single prayer. Like, fire from heaven comes and just, like, engulfs this, this, this uh, sacrifice on the top of it. It's amazing. It's the stuff of legends. And so as the people are now being oppressed by the Romans, after they've been oppressed by the, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, like all these people before them have been oppressed, 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 oppressed. Now the Romans are in place, and the people are just whispering, man, there's going to be a day where God's going to put the world back in order, and he's going to send the Messiah. He's going to send someone probably in the spirit of Elijah, someone who can stand up to King Herod maybe, someone who can even go talk to the emperor in Rome, set things straight. And they had this faith. But it wasn't like super well developed. They weren't like, it's going to be Jesus, and he's going to give his life on the cross, and we're going to do communion every week. Like, I don't think they had a picture of that. Actually, it was more military and more political is what they think was coming. Jesus is going to blow all their categories out of the water. So Zechariah is standing in the temple. An angel shows up and says, you're going to be a daddy. You will call him John. And he's going to be so full of the Holy Spirit that he's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he's going to point people's hearts back to God. And he's going to get people's parents leading their children back to God. And all the nations are going to see what it means to be pointed back to God. He's told he's not going to take any fermented drink. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is kind of a a sect of Judaism called uh, the Nazarene vow. Nazarite? Nazarite vow. And the, the idea, like you might have heard Samson did this thing. Elijah had taken this vow. And so it's this whole, this whole little package. When the angel presents to Zechariah what his son is going to be like, Zechariah is reading between all the lines. And he, first of all, he's like, I get what you're talking about. But second of all, I'm an old man. By the way, I don't have babies. My wife has babies. And she's an old woman. And we've been trying to have babies for a long time, and we have just decided that we can't. So, he says in verse 18, how can I be sure of this? You ever felt that way? Someone to your life, come into your life and said, listen, this is going to be okay. Or, it's going to work out. And you're like, okay. Yeah, I mean, I've lived a lot of life, and... Things seem to be pointing in a certain direction. So Zechariah, even in the presence of this angel, he's a, he's a realist. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. But the angel's ready with an answer. Um, how, can I be sure, how can you be sure? Well, verse 19. I don't know if you know who I am, but I am Gabriel. By the way, one of the most powerful creatures God ever created. Okay, Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now, you want to know how you can be sure? Well, you will be silent, and you will not be able to speak until this day happens because you do not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I don't think the angel is angry. I think he's just like, oh, you, you want to be sure? Okay, check this out. Mute button. <laughs> Silence. And I wonder if Zechariah was like, you know, and like, because there's got to be this moment in his life where he's like, wait a second, I can't talk. Uh, so, nine months later, baby's born. Okay, I'm going to skip to the chase. This, this thing happens. Baby's born. Verse 57, also in chapter 1. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. So there's been this long period of time. Now, I wonder, and we pick up in a minute that John's going to be like writing some things down. I wonder how much he'd communicated. John's an educated guy from what we can tell. He can write. He can do some things. My guess is he probably had kind of explained what happened. I wonder if there's some people like, you sure it's not just laryngitis, John? Like, we could get some... Maybe you just need some sort of essential oil. You just rub it on here. It's going to fix it. Like whatever it is, cough drops, I don't know. But he's been waiting for this day. The baby comes, verse 62, and they made signs to the father, Zechariah, to find out what he would like to name the child. This is a tradition. What do you want to call your boy? So he asked for a writing tablet. So they hand him an iPad. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Which I've heard a couple of people talk about the, the notion that often you would have a family name. A specific, he might have been called Zechariah or something like that. So this idea that his name will be John, I, I just, I wonder how much he talked to Elizabeth about ahead of time by writing it down and signs and stuff. But that's what the angel told him to name him. So this is what he tells him. His name will be John. And if you look at verse 64, this thing happens. And, and this to me must have especially been, uh, no matter what Zechariah had been able to tell his wife, and his closest friends. This moment, I think, would have been the nail in the coffin moment where they're like, he's telling the truth. Immediately, his mouth was open, his tongue was set free, and he began to speak. And what's the first thing he does? Praises God. That's the story. Finally, Zechariah can tell this story. There was an angel, and I was in there, and I was so scared. He's like, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. He's like, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be like Elijah. And, oh, my goodness, you know the stories of Elijah. And he's just, like, I just can't imagine, like, he's just going off, and he's super excited about it. And, and he rejoices, and he praises God. But what I love about Zechariah's story is that he's aware that there's something much bigger going on. I remember when my children were born, and I remember this, 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 this like, excitement about, like, it, it, was, it was very, like, the world closed in. Not in a bad way, but, like, everything got much more important and smaller. It's like, okay, wow. I remember sitting with my son and my daughter the first nights they were alive, and just, I told both of them, like, the whole story of the Bible. Like, buckle up, kids. Your dad's a preacher. Um, <laughs> but I remember being like, you need to know God loves you, and this is the story, and this is all the stuff, and they remembered it all, and they recited it back to me the next day. Um, everything kind of closes in. You're like, this is my life now. And Zechariah, who he and his wife had waited so long for a child, so long that they, he didn't even believe when an angel told him there was going to be one. Yet in this moment, it doesn't get small for him. It gets big. And, he, and he, he, we have this recorded thing. We call it Zechariah's prayer. 
Luke 1, it starts in verse 68. It's going to go all the way through verse 79. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I would encourage you to read it this week. It's, it's pretty powerful. But in verse 68, this is the prayer he prays. This is the perspective he has on this baby. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. The thought that you could look at your baby. We got babies in the room right now. And I, I love babies, but I got to be honest, they're pretty helpless. You got to do like everything for them. And to look at one of them and be like, you are the proof that God is redeeming the world. Would you please sleep for more than two hours at a time? <laughs> right? But this is the perspective because of what a Zechariah experienced. We fast forward to verse 76. I kind of picture him holding John, and he sort of speaks to John in this last section. He says, and you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender of mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Shine light in dark places. Does that sound familiar? This is John's story. This is Zechariah's story. This is our story. But can I just make a suggestion, parents? This would be a fantastic prayer to pray over our children. You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. That might not be true. But the concept that you can go on before the Lord, you can prepare a way for him in, in the way to say, listen, people, people will walk on the path that you make and they'll know who God is. You can bring people the knowledge of salvation. You can lead people to the forgiveness of sin because of God's mercy. And you can show people the way out of darkness and into light. This is not the point of this message. This is not the point of Zechariah's story. But man, what if we began to pray that over our children? What if we looked at our kids with this perspective and say, listen, you, you guys are what God has put in the world to make a difference. And what if we as parents lived that way? The most important thing for me to show you is not the new password we got for Disney+. Plus. It's not to sign you up for another travel league or make sure you get straight A's on everything. By the way, parents, I need to remind you again, that is not the most important thing your kid can do. Kids, try. Try, do your best, okay? But if the only thing you want your kids to do is have a great resume, and the core value that you're teaching them is not you need to honor God with your life, you as a parent, you should just check what Scripture says about parenting. It's our purpose as parents to be, <laughs> there's no such thing as youth ministers in the Bible. Or Sunday school teachers. There are parents. Anyway, what if we prayed that over our children? If you're not familiar with the Jesus story in the Bible, or maybe the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is a little bit foggy, or you're like, who is this John guy anyway? Let me catch you up. And if you do know the story, just remember this, and you know more than this. Check this out. This baby, born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he's not the baby in the manger at the nativity. Okay, this is not the baby. There's another baby. We're going to talk about him later. But he is like the kickoff of the Messiah story. This baby becomes John the Baptist. John grows up to be a famous rabbi. Like, I'm talking famous. In his region, people from miles around would just walk out of their way into, like, remote places just to hear him preach. Many, 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 many people repent from sin and turn their hearts back to God based on his teaching. He had some disciples, lots of disciples, but one in particular named Andrew and a couple of others. Andrew had a brother named Peter. Peter was Jesus' most famous disciple, becomes a leader of the first church. All of that began because John begins preaching this message of salvation and this message of God's redemption. And so he has hundreds and hundreds of people who start to be kind of convinced of this stuff. 
So when Jesus hits the scene, something really cool happens. John gets to be the one to baptize Jesus. And in this moment, God shows up in this mighty voice and this dove that comes down. He's like, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And it's the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. And guess who kicks it off? Who the MC of that day is? This baby. The Old Testament had a prophecy said that there would be one, a voice in the wilderness crying out, make straight the path for the Messiah. And that's John. There is hope because God is up to something. The pieces for this story were falling into place for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And we can't wait two days for, you know, a check to clear. (laughs) We're so impatient We want things right now. And God's like, look, I got a calendar. I got a timeline. I got a plan. The beautiful thing of that is that brings us hope. You know, Zechariah was singing that song that we have at the end of Luke chapter 1. He didn't know all that about his son yet. He didn't know that John was going to grow up to be this great rabbi. And that there's some theories that he might have even been Jesus' rabbi, which I'll just say that, plant that on him. Jesus grew up like a human being. People taught him stuff. And a lot of people think that maybe John the Baptist was one who taught him a lot. They seem to have a close relationship already when they meet. So that's just food for thought. Zechariah didn't know that. He didn't know that like all these hundreds of people were going to come to repentance based on his son's teaching. But here's what he knew. He knew that God was up to something. And he never lets his people down. And so this is what I want to tell you right now. God is up to something. And he never lets his people down. What are you struggling with? What faith thing are you dealing with? What, what thing was beating you up on your way here this morning or right now in your head? I can't fill in the blanks for you, but you know what it is. And there are moments where we just feel so hopeless, but we have a God who has a track record of just kept promises and answered prayers. And he's the same God that we serve today. And the foresight he had to introduce a forerunner to Jesus and John the Baptist, to come to a righteous guy like Zechariah and completely shake up his world. This is the same God that can bring you hope today. Every week I try to give us a challenge, something tangible to take home. And I'm going to tell you, as a preacher, I got a lot of preacher friends, and um, preaching at Christmas is weird because it's like the same five stories and like, do we want to just like go off script and do something different? But most of you are like, no, I'm ready to see the baby Jesus. Like, we'll get there. And so, but as I landed on this idea of hope, I just had this thought, okay? This is the challenge this week. My challenge for us this week is simple, but it's going to be hard. Fill every day this week with prayers of hope. Because hope is the idea of being able to see the light even though you're in the darkness. And I think some of us might be in a place where you're like, oh, actually, life's pretty good. I'm happy. That's fantastic. I'm so glad God has blessed you with that perspective and that life. But guess what? For a lot of the world, it's not. How can we stand in the gap like John the Baptist, being a forerunner for people, for Jesus, to introduce him to the real hero of the story? I think it starts with us developing developing a perspective of hope. And so my challenge this week is that we would fill every day this week with prayers of hope. Here's some ideas. Because what does that mean? What does that mean? this week, maybe today, maybe right now, we got a song coming up and communion and some stuff. You could just write some stuff down during this. This would be a great chance for you to do that. Write down some things that you're worried about most. What are they? What are the things you're worried about the most? 
You know what it is. And then right down beside it, but God never lets his people down. I'm worried about work and finances, and I don't know where our next paycheck is going to come from, but God never lets his people down. I am stressed out about this exam coming up or this school thing that's going on, but God never lets his people down. This relationship is a wreck, and I don't know what to do with it, dot, 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 but God never lets his people down. And then what I want you to do is just read that out as a prayer twice a day. Simple. One thing that the, the Jewish people were really good at is having like structured prayer and on a schedule. So you got these, these supercomputers in your pocket. Uh, I was going to say, hey, Siri, but I don't want to say that because everybody's phone will go off. You tell that personal assistant in your phone, set an alarm for 8 a.m. Set an alarm for 2.30 p.m. And when that alarm goes off, be like, oh, yeah, I wrote down that stupid prayer that Chris made me write down. And God is up to something. Okay. He never lets his people down. I'm telling you, it, it becomes part of your mentality and your psychology. Here's another example. Set an alarm every day, one for each of your children. And pray that Zechariah prayer over your children. I got two. How long would that take? How long would that take? By, by Thursday, you got it memorized, right? Or some kind of prayer. Or your spouse or your coworker or that friend or your mom or dad, the person that you've been trying to love on, like whatever it is. Like set an alarm and just this is the challenge for one week. Pray for them every day. This is filling our week with prayers of hope. Or arrange a lunch or a coffee with one of your friends or for someone from your small group. Or if you don't know anybody, try to meet somebody today. Just like, can we talk about something? And, and commit part of that conversation. Here's what I want to do. I want to just have some conversations about hope. And so just with them, like, yeah, catch up on the day and what's going on. Be like, All right, um, how do you find hope? And then they tell you, and then you do them a favor. You tell them ways that you find hope. See how this is very tangible? This is very doable. But we're not going to change our minds about things unless we build it into our schedule. Here's a great one. Maybe you struggle to find hope. Maybe all of this seems ridiculous to you because you're just like, I don't really have hope. I want you to know that that does not scare your God. He's not scared of the things that you're scared of. He's not worried. He's not worried that there's no hope in the world. You're not the first person to have these thoughts. So instead, here's my challenge for you. Once a day, every day this week, just talk to God about your struggle to find hope. And ask him, will you help me see it? Sometimes these messages can be so simple, yet life-altering. Hope is very real, but it's found nowhere else but in the name of Jesus. Nothing else can fill you. Nothing else can satisfy you. But Jesus will lead you to life and hope. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.